Good morning, VRBC. Uh, so great to see so many faces in the room. So great to have you who are joining us online. I'm pointing to the wrong camera, aren't I? You who are joining us online, uh, great to have you as well. We continue week three of a four-week series called To the Church. And we're looking at letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John to be sent to a variety of churches. And we're listening to what Jesus has to say to our church. And uh, these letters are found in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. And you know, the book of Revelation in general has the effect of being scary and comforting all at the same time. It shocks us with images of judgment and of spiritual danger, and yet it continually comforts us with reminders of Christ's presence and nearness. And uh, one of the particular ways this book comforts us is it reminds us that as a church, we're not alone. We learn in the early chapters of Revelation that Jesus walks among the lampstands that represent the churches. Uh, he is present with us and he holds us in his hands. And uh, so that's a great encouragement to us today. You know, throughout uh, this series, as we look at what Jesus was saying to seven churches uh, in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, uh, we listen for what he says to us, and today we're going to have a chance to overhear what he says to two churches, a church in the city of Sardis and a church in the city of Philadelphia. Not that Philadelphia, uh, but the original Philadelphia. And so listen as I read from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, so they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. Have you ever played a game called Would You Rather? Yes, Yes, all right, thank you. (laughs) Maybe you were on a long car ride or uh, kind of bored and somebody asked you, you know, would you rather? And then they, they supplied a hypothetical for you. Like, for example, would you rather show up at a party underdressed or overdressed? It's kind of tough, isn't it? Would you rather have telekinesis, the ability to move things with your mind, or would you rather have telepathy, the ability to read the minds of others? In the month of May, would you rather give up air conditioning or internet? I didn't say the month of July, so the month of May. Would you rather have a personal maid or a personal chef? And of course, the children are saying, I got both. Uh, well, there's a reason why I asked you the question. Because today, uh, we're going to... Um, wrestle with a very important would-you-rather question about the two churches we just read about, the Sardis Church and the Philadelphia Church. The question I want to ask you is, which church would you rather be a part of? Now, before you answer too quickly, I want you to take a look at both of these churches, and I want you to try to answer the question honestly. You know, sometimes in church, we know the answer we're supposed to give, like Children in a children's sermon, sitting at the pastor's feet. You know, we know the right answer is Jesus. We, we just don't really understand the question. I want us to think about an honest answer. Which church would we rather be a part of? What true answer wells up in our hearts? So, the first church we'll look at, the first would you rather question is this. Would you rather be an impressive church that has lost her way? That's the church at Sardis. An impressive church, but a church that has gotten sidetracked. We hear this in the very first verse of our passage, don't we? Verse one, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God, seven the number of fullness representing the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars, the seven churches. I know your deeds, Jesus says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's hard to imagine a more sweeping verdict on a church. We hear Jesus speaking to this church in one of the premier cities in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Sardis was said to have made a lot of Uh, Money, mining gold from a nearby river. It was a wealthy city. It was an impressive city. And sometimes a church in an impressive city can kind of almost take on that role. Churches sometimes can almost be chameleons to the culture. We more closely resemble the outside color of the culture than we do the character of Jesus Christ. From the outside... Everything looks resplendent. Everything from the outside cultivates the look of a church that's doing what it's supposed to do. And you look at the website and you go, man, this church is alive. You see all those stock photos and you go, look at the members of this church. It, 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 It looks alive. It has the deeds to show it. The only problem is the one who holds the seven spirits 
the one who sends the Holy Spirit, the one who holds churches in his hands, says, guess what? You're dead. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is absent, by and large, from the church. I think this is one of the scariest realities that any pastor faces, and that it is, it is possible, it is conceivable, through the help of a healthy budget and, and uh, staff and good facilities, it is possible to maintain the programs of the church long after Jesus has left the building. Sardis is scary. A church can have the lights on. A church can have a program. A church can have uh, e-news sent out. Uh, a church can have what uh, Jesus says is a reputation for being alive and yet be spiritually dead. And this is not just true of churches. It's, it's really true of life, isn't it? It's possible to have an exterior reputation but lack inner renewal. It's possible to put our trust in the impermanent things on the outside and not the eternal things on the inside, the the things that are maintained by the power of God's spirit. We can do it in our marriage. Things can look good on the outside. The best uh, photos with the best filters can be carefully curated with the sweetest captions on Valentine's Day and anniversary. And, And from the outside, the reputation of the marriage looks great. Only the husband and wife know the true lifelessness of the relationship on the inside. We can do it with our professional lives. We can work so hard to build a great career. We can think our professional reputation will provide all the meaning our life currently lacks, uh, that it will provide all the joy and value and sense of, of accomplishment and identity that we crave. We can give everything to our career And only when we begin to exit, realize how hollow it might be. Arthur Brooks, Brooks, a journalist uh, and business leader, has written a book called Strength to Strength. And he he talked about a a conversation he had with a retired CEO. And he said, this was a guy who was at the top of the pyramid. He was at the center of everything. But when he retired, the CEO told Arthur Brooks, he said, in just six months, I went from being who's who To who's he? All that value placed in who's who. Six months and it's gone. It can happen in marriages. It can happen in careers. And it can certainly happen in churches. We can put our hope and trust in the wrong thing. We can give the outward appearance of life, but there's an inner coffin in our souls. Here's what I love about this. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm done with you, Sardis. (laughs) He doesn't say, okay, I'm calling time of death, uh, April 30th at 1010, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, he does just the opposite. In verses two and three, I almost sense Jesus like an ER doc barking orders. (laughs) He wants the church to wake up. He wants them to, to locate whatever still has life And to strengthen it, whatever small flame exists, he wants them to feed that flame. He wants them to remember the gospel. He wants them to remember all that Jesus has taught and invested and done for them. He wants them to hold on to what is truly spiritual treasure, not the Babylonian treasure our kids just sang about, but true spiritual treasure. And he wants them to repent. 
He wants them to do a 180, to turn away from worldliness and to follow Jesus. Because wherever you hear a medic, a physician barking orders, it's because time is of the essence. In verse three, Jesus uses this frightening image. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at which time I will come to you. One commentator says, you know, imagine a family sleeping comfortably in their bed and an intruder breaks in and it's not a criminal, it's Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and this commentator says, Jesus comes to rob the church of its complacency. He comes like a thief. He comes to rob the church of complacency so that she might find her true security. The church is in danger, Jesus says to Sardis. There are some people in Sardis who think they're Christians and their names are not even in the book of life. They're cultural Christians. They've never really followed Jesus. Would you rather be a church that looks great from the curb? Would you rather be a church that has a reputation as the place to be seen in the community, but is essentially lifeless on the inside? Would you rather be that church that is asleep when Jesus breaks in like a thief? You know, there's a fascinating historical fact about the city of Sardis. We have a, a picture for you. Uh, it was, a, it, it was a, a city that was built uh, kind of on a, on a citadel. And, uh, and because of that, it gave the impression of being this kind of impregnable fortress. But do you know, on two different occasions, once an army of Persians and once Antiochus of, of Epiphanes, uh, captured the city unaware. I think, it, I think Sardis thought, oh, look at us. What army's gonna come up here and capture us? And they became complacent, and they were surprised and humiliated. Maybe that's why Jesus says to Sardis, it's time to wake up. It's time for revival. It's time to ask Christ to forgive us, to cleanse us, to, to clothe us in the pure white garments of his holiness. You know, I would have to say one of the things that encourages me the most about our church in this season is that I, I really sense what many people call gospel wakefulness uh, at the core of our church. There's a, there, there's a wakefulness to the beauty of the gospel. I love worshiping with you. I love watching how you study and your, your interest in scripture. I love hearing you pray I love watching you serve. Uh, your prayer, group prayer, individual prayer, is a leading spiritual indicator that you're not taking the call of Christ for granted. And so I wanna say thank you for that. But I also want us to read this warning <laughs> and take it seriously. So back to the would you rather question. Would you rather be a church that has a reputation for being alive but is not? Would you, would you rather be a church that has all the earthly toys a church could want? Would you rather be a church that has the best Yelp reviews but be dead on the inside? Or would you rather be a vulnerable church that is accomplishing her mission? The church at Philadelphia was in a very different historical situation from the church at, at Sardis. It was vulnerable. Uh, it was small. It was poor, it was harassed, it was opposed, 
by two different, very strong constituencies. Pagan Romans persecuted the church because it didn't uh, declare the emperor to be Lord. It, uh, it, it claimed Jesus as Lord. And then there were also in the local synagogue those who weren't fans of the, the church at Philadelphia either. In fact, likely many of the members of that church had been locked out of the synagogue. They had been excommunicated. They had been told that they are no longer children of Abraham uh, anymore. So they had basically were opposed wherever they looked, they were opposed. Can I ask you, does that sound like fun? <laughs> Constant opposition and harassment from neighbors on all sides? And you're small and you're struggling and you're just trying to make it to the next Sunday, the next month, the next year. None of that sounds like fun to me. And yet Jesus says something remarkable to that church in verse eight. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. What a verse. Jesus says, look, I get it. I mean, humanly speaking, you, you, you have little strength. Church is a struggle. Life is a struggle. Some days you're just trying to keep the lights on. You have little strength, but Jesus says, I have infinite strength. <laughs> so keep following me as I keep leading you forward. In fact, look how Jesus is described just one verse earlier. Jesus introduces himself to the church at Philadelphia. He says, these are the words in this letter of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he, what Jesus opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Isn't that beautiful? To a church that is vulnerable and weak and struggling, Jesus says, guess what, church? You've got friends in high places. Yeah, you lack strength, that's okay. I've got strength for you. Charles Spurgeon said something really interesting about this. He says, you know, Jesus never blames us for having too little strength. He comes down on us for being, having little faith or little love. But he never says anything about you of little strength. Why is that? Because he's not intimidated. He provides the strength for us. And Jesus has the only key that matters. He can open doors that no enemy, the devil himself, cannot close. And the church's enemies, whether Jewish or pagan, would not be able to stop Jesus from opening doors to spread the gospel. Jesus is opening doors and the kingdom is rushing in. I, uh, I, I read on Facebook uh, a few days ago that uh, this facilities manager named Ken at a church I used to serve uh, had passed away and uh, just a great, great guy. And I remember um, when I was on, on staff with him that he had this huge ring of keys. I mean, it was gigantic. And, um, and I, I was like this singles minister and I had a key that opened the office suite and a key that opened my office. And I think that was about it. And, and Ken had a key to everything. And I remember thinking, you know, I've seen the org chart and he's not at the top of it, but functionally speaking, this guy has all the power. I mean, he can get the apple juice and goldfish and steal it from the children's ministry if he wants to. He, can, he, he knows where the round tables are. He knows where the volleyball nets are. He, he, can, he has access to the church vans. 
I mean, he is all powerful. He has a key to everything. I picture Jesus saying to the church at Philadelphia, church, don't despair. I've got the keys. <laughs> and I'm going to open up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for you to share my gospel, for you to expand the kingdom. And guess what? There's not a thing that Rome or the neighborhood synagogue can do about it. How, can, how does that strike you, church? Would you rather be a comfortable church dead inside or a vulnerable church walking behind Jesus who's opening the doors? Now, before you answer, I want you to think about it. Because if Jesus has the keys and if Jesus opens the door, I think that means there's only one direction that pleases Jesus, and that is forward. Forward march. And maybe you might say to him, but you don't understand, Jesus. We're losing our pastor. <laughs> Jesus is the pastor. Jesus walks among the churches. Jesus has the Holy Spirit. He has the stars, the churches in his hands. Jesus is the pastor. And Jesus says, no shrinking back. No, moving forward. One of my favorite stories, a true story and kind of also a leadership parable, uh, it's about an, an Arabic commander in the 8th century, his name was Tariq, and he and his army were invading Spain, they land on the shores uh, in Spain and they immediately realize that Tariq and his army are vastly outnumbered. And Tariq could feel fear overtaking his soldiers. He knew in his heart what his soldiers wanted to do which was to get back in the ships and to paddle as quickly as they could away from Spain. And realizing this, Tariq did something that was kind of counterintuitive. He ordered his troops to burn his ships. He told his troops to burn the boats to incinerate their only insurance policy. Can you imagine it? Here you're a frightened soldier and your getaway car is in flames? And then Tariq gathered his soldiers together and he says, behind you is the sea, before you is the enemy, you are vastly outnumbered, all you have is your sword and your courage. You and I have the sword of the spirit and we have Jesus and the only way out is forward marching behind the one with the key of David in his hands. I love this promise that Jesus makes to this vulnerable, struggling church. What does he say in verse 12? He points to himself. He says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven for my God. And I will also write on them my New name. In an ancient world, as in our world, but in an ancient world, pillars were very significant architectural features. They supported the roof, which is, uh, I, I think, a very important thing uh, for a roof to be supported. Or sometimes, and you can see it in Rome today, they would be freestanding, a monument that celebrates uh, the lives and victories of great leaders. Uh, almost by definition, a pillar is something that is not easily moved. And Jesus says to that struggling church, you are pillars. 
You will be pillars in the new Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm going to graffiti all over you. I'm going I'm to write the name God over you. I'm going to write the name New Jerusalem over you. I'm going to write my new name, never before revealed. I'm going to write my new name on you. Doesn't that just put iron in your soul, church? When Jesus promises to make the faithful his pillars? I mean, maybe right now your knees are buckling under the burden of faithfulness. But one day, Jesus says, you will stand so solid that nothing will move you. You know, as far as I'm concerned, this book of Revelation is one of the most misunderstood and poorly served books in the Bible. Somebody said to me, oh, oh now you're preaching on Revelation when you're about to leave, and, <laughs> and not the fun parts either. They, um, you know, I, I think so many people, uh, I love the book of Revelation, by the way. I think so many people, though, abuse the book of Revelation. They use it as a, a decoder ring try to predict the end of history in every generation. And I've lived long enough where I've heard other Christians assure me that Leonid Brezhnev was the Antichrist and Miguel Gorbachev was the Antichrist and Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and, 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 and all of these failed predictions from decoder ring interpreters. I, I, was at, I remember being a, a student at a youth camp in 1979 and our camp pastor said, he said, young people, I can't tell you the day and I can't tell you the hour, but by my study, I'm convinced Jesus is gonna come to earth in the next two years. I remember thinking, okay, 1981 at the latest. Uh, do I even go to college? Uh, turns out his decoder ring was off. And all the while, while so many Christians miss understand the book of Revelation. There is spiritual gold there, not just for the last generation. There's, there's gold for every generation that reads the book of Revelation. I love the way that theologian Craig Keener put it, and I, and I want to put this on the screen. He says, every generation has the opportunity, at least, to learn equally the lessons of Revelation. What are they? That God is in control. What a great lesson that the powers of the world are minuscule when compared with God, that God is as likely to work through apparent weakness, church at Philadelphia, and failure as through strength and success, church at Sardis, and that in the end, God's people will prevail. There it is. Hang on to that, church. You know, we started the sermon with a game of, of would you rather. And a, a lot of would you rathers leave you feeling kind of 50-50. Like, I don't know, maid or chef, I don't know. Right? But as you ask yourself, would I rather be Sardis or Philadelphia? Would I rather be a comfortable church that's dead or a struggling church that's alive? I hope there's no contest in your soul. I hope it's Philadelphia. And I wonder what that might look like for you to, to really claim that prayer and that desire. Maybe you might first have to confess an obsession with appearances. Maybe you might first have to repent of complacency. Maybe right now is a moment for you to, in a sense, burn the ships. Maybe this is a moment for us as a church to burn the ships. 
and to decide right now that there's only one way and it is forward, not backwards. Not when Jesus has the keys. Yes, the bad news is complacency must be exposed. The bad news is that sometimes our earthly security, sometimes our churchly security must be shattered. But the good news, the infinitely better news, is that Jesus is always on the move. I want to try to bring this home for us. The news these days about the church in North America is pretty grim. Have you noticed that? Denominations are splitting. Many denominations are distracted. Um, churches, many of them are, are, are shuddering. Uh, lots of pastors, especially younger pastors, are growing discouraged and quitting. Lots of young people have grown disillusioned with the church. Uh, they've seen the blind spots of their parents' generation, and they, their faith is deconstructed. Too many churches, in my humble opinion, care more about who's going to be president the next four or eight years than the eternal king of kings and lord of lords. The news in North American church circles is bad, and it may even get worse. But if you think the church is cooked, you haven't read the Bible. (laughs) Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You can read the obituaries. People are writing about the church in, in America, but you know what? Don't believe them. Not when Jesus is walking among the lampstands. People have tried that before. I read a, a column recently by a, a columnist I follow. His name is Ross Douthat. And, uh, and uh, in the column, there was something about Jefferson. I said something really nice about Jefferson last week. And so now, equal time, uh, not so nice. Uh, in my opinion, a great president and a terrible spiritual example. Uh, and uh, you may know that uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, didn't like or agree or believe in much of what the Gospels wrote about Jesus, especially uh, the miracles and uh, his resurrection and things like that. And so he literally took scissors and cut out the parts that he didn't like. Uh, he, he reclaimed Jesus as a moral leader, and he took out all the parts about him being the uh, Son of God and the resurrected Lord. And Jefferson's goal was that everybody would believe what he believed. That's why he produced his own edited Bible. And, uh, and he began to grow confident that one day everybody would be Unitarian like him and not believe that Jesus was the Son of God and not believe in the Holy Spirit anymore. In fact, in a letter in 1822, Thomas Jefferson boasted to a friend, I trust that there is not a young man now living in the United States who will not die a Unitarian. In other words, a person who stopped believing the divinity of Jesus. He made this boast in 1822. But do you know in 1821, one Sunday evening in upstate New York, a young man named Charles Finney was participating in a multi-day prayer meeting. And he later said at one point in the prayer meeting, he met the Lord Jesus face to face. The living Lord stood before me, he said, and I fell down at his feet, kind of like John the Apostle in Revelation 1, I fell down at his feet and poured out my soul to him. I wept aloud like a child and made such confessions as I could with my choked utterance. Charles Finney would give leadership to a coming age of revivalism which would give birth to the second great awakening and a renewed version of evangelical Christianity would burst upon 
19th century America. One year before Jefferson confidently proclaimed its death. Guess what? When it feels like the church is struggling, I would much rather put my hope in the risen Christ. He's got the seven stars. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's writing the names of the faithful in the book of life, and he's coming soon, and he will make us stand strong like pillars. He's got the keys, church. So let's keep moving forward, only one direction, forward in faith behind Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've got the whole world in your hands. You have Valley Ranch Baptist Church in your hands. And Lord, this passage from Revelation 3 causes us to think very seriously, very soberly about what we say we want and what we want in our hearts of heart. And Lord, we, we want our profession to be clear that what we want is to follow you. What we want is to be alive. What we want is to move forward. What we want is to humble ourselves before you. What we want is for you to revive our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What we want is not to care what our community thinks of us so much as what you think of us, Lord, and to be faithful to what you promise. Our living, Lord, at the right hand of God, And so, Lord, would you, in this moment, fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you, this moment, unlock hearts that are closed to you? Would you, this moment, cause us to experience the beautiful beauty of the gospel again and again and again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.